I remember standing in a line a block long at the Hollywood cinemas in Joplin on a cold night in 2004. My wife and I had taken her 89-year-old father with us to see a highly publicized film. And after a 45-minute wait, we were able to get tickets and find three seats together, much closer to the screen. <laughs> than I would have preferred, but I remember how determined my father-in-law was to view this particular film. And I remember later that night when we dropped him off, walked him up to the door, how much the whole experience meant to him. Of course, we didn't realize that just a few weeks later that he would die suddenly while walking one morning in the mall. The movie was the passion of the Christ. And I don't think I was ever able to fully comprehend the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross until seeing that film. Now, when the movie was first released, there was quite a bit of controversy because of the violence against Jesus that was portrayed. There were some people who thought that there might be an anti-Semitic backlash but thoughtful people realize that the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' crucifixion aren't about blaming the Jews. They're about the depravity that is resident in all mankind. And there were some who charged that Christians were inconsistent to oppose violence in the movies and yet praise the passion of the Christ, which did have some graphic scenes. But there's a big difference between gratuitous violence and the realistic portrayal of an historical event. For example, after viewing the movie Saving Private Ryan, I had a much greater appreciation for what our military endured on D-Day to preserve our freedom. So to me, there is a big difference between the violence that I can only imagine is contained in something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the war violence that is related to Saving Private Ryan. One has exploitative violence and the other presents a visual reality that helps us comprehend an actual event. More recently, I cringed at times while watching the movie Selma, seeing the brutality that was visited on our African-American brothers and sisters in Alabama 
But I'll tell you this, it deepened my appreciation for the sacrifices of those courageous early civil rights leaders. So although we went, and although we want to divert our eyes from the crucifixion of Jesus, some of us take away a deeper gratitude for the price that he paid for our salvation. And one of the truths that we've tried to impress throughout this series of messages is that neither the Jews nor the Romans really put Jesus on the cross. He put himself there. John 10, 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. The cross was something that he dreaded, and yet it was something that he embraced. And this is captured so well in just a one-minute clip from the Easter experience from City on a Hill Productions. So why did he willingly submit to such suffering when he could have called a legion of angels to put a stop to it? Well, it's because death on the cross was not something that Jesus resisted. We often hear about a life being taken, but we seldom hear about a life being given. But Scripture speaks in more than one place about Jesus laying down his life. And today, we want to try to see the cross through the eyes of Jesus. And I think, first of all, Jesus saw the cross as the inescapable consequence of our sin. Not his sin, but our sin. It all started in the book of beginnings, in the book of Genesis. God created man, that is Adam, woman, that is Eve, in perfection. And I believe this is history. I do not believe it is merely a story. Not only because the Old Testament tells me so in the narrative found in Genesis chapters 1 through 4 and the mention of Adam in the genealogies in Genesis 5, in 1 Chronicles 1, in Luke chapter 3, but also because Jesus refers to the, to the first man and the first woman as real historical characters. And if he said they were historical, I believe it. Because anybody who can predict his own death and bodily resurrection and then follow through and pull that off, I, I believe absolutely everything he says. And then later, the apostle Paul spoke of Adam as being formed first and woman being formed from Adam. And you read that in 1 Corinthians 11. 
1 Timothy chapter 2. And then in Romans chapter 5, Paul contrasts the sin of one man, Adam, with the righteousness of one man, that is Jesus. So Paul speaks of Adam in the very same way that he speaks of Jesus. Well, Adam and Eve lived a perfect existence. They lived in perfect obedience. They lived in perfect fellowship with their Creator. But God warned them, if they disobeyed, their sin would fracture the relationship and they would experience death. He warned them that sin would have terrible consequences. The soul that sins shall die. And you know the story. Eve saw that the fruit was appealing and she ate it and she insisted that Adam eat it or sleep on the couch. So Adam chose to disobey too. Immediately, they felt guilty. They hid themselves in shame. Their perfect world began to unravel. They were cast out of Eden. They were cut off from the tree of life. They began to bicker. One of their sons murdered the other. The aging process set in, and eventually they died. And their sin had awful consequences, spiritual, emotional, and physical consequences. But God immediately set a plan in motion to reconcile mankind to himself, to reconcile us to himself. And it's revealed in the first messianic prophecy pronounced as judgment against Satan in Genesis 3.15. God said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Satan, the seed of woman, is going to crush your head. That's permanent defeat. That's a fatal wound. But in the process, you will strike his heel. That is, there will be pain and suffering for the seed of woman. And this is what happened on the cross. Now, Adam and Eve may have set the consequences of sin in motion, but through the years... (laughs) We've all participated in taking it to the next level, even though most of us think of ourselves as pretty good people. But the Bible declares in Romans 3, 10 and 11, there is no one who is righteous, no one. All have turned away from God. They have all gone wrong. No one does what is right, not even one. And the whole reason for the law in the Old Testament, was to expose our sin to us. The Ten Commandments were were not given to make us moral as much as they were given to make us aware that we've sinned and that we need a Savior. So I want to do a little exercise here this morning. What I want to do is go over the Ten Commandments with you, and I want you to mentally keep count this morning of the ones you have never broken. Sound like fun? Now keep this in mind. You only have to break one commandment one time to be alienated from a holy God, to be fully deserving of the consequences of your sin. So here we go. First of all, you shall have no other gods before me. So if you've always put God first and you've never put money or sex, or career, or family ahead of him, you can count this as one you've never broken. Moving on, you shall not make for yourself any graven image. 
So if you've never fashioned an idol of some kind and bowed down to it, count this as one you've never broken. Aren't you glad that one's in there? We've all got that one. What about this? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So if you have never used the name of God or Jesus in a profane way, if you've never said out loud, oh my God, in some vain outburst, then you can count this one as one that you've never broken. How about remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? If you've always observed worship in a way that honors God, if you've never skipped out on worship to go to a ball game or while you're out on vacation, if your mind never wanders in worship, if you've never come in late or left a service early, <laughs> I just slipped that one in there. <laughs> if you've always taken a weekly day of rest, well, you can count this as one you've never broken. Okay, honor your father and mother. If you always obeyed your parents when you were little and you never sassed them and you never made fun of the way they dress, if you've looked after them when they're older, then you can count this one as one that you've not broken. How you doing? You shall not kill. Now, if you've never murdered anyone, count it. Now, the New Testament says if you hate another person in your heart, you're guilty. But we're not, we're not going to worry about that for now. Just go ahead and count it as one you've never broken. You shall not commit adultery. So if you've never been unfaithful to your mate, and if you were never promiscuous before marriage, count it. Now the New Testament says that if you lust in your heart, you're guilty. But we're not going to worry about that for now. Go ahead and count it as one you've never broken. You shall not steal. So if you've never taken a dollar out of your mother's purse... You've never lifted a towel from a motel room. If you've never taken an answer off someone else's test, you can count this one. You shall not lie. Now, if you've never been dishonest, you never told your parents you were going someplace other than where you went, you never misrepresented the truth to the IRS, you never told your wife she looked nice in a dress when you actually thought she looked a little dowdy, I think there is such a thing as a good lie. That's a good lie. <laughs> you can count this as one you've never broken. Or how about this final one, the tenth one, you shall not covet. So if you've never desired something or someone that belonged to another, if, if you've never been envious of someone else's college team getting into the final four when your team didn't make it, got to be a Wisconsin fan over there. <laughs> Count this as one you've never broken. Okay, so, so how'd you do? How many have kept all ten of the commandments? See, that just goes to show there's no one who's righteous. No one. How about nine? Eight? Seven? 
You are a wicked bunch is all I've got to say. <laughs> well, someone might say, hey, hey, wait a minute. I'm not as bad as Howard Stern. <laughs> Just one problem. God doesn't grade people on the curve. We're measured against the law in the Old Testament, and we're measured against the character of Jesus in the New Testament. Well, have you noticed today that, that sin is made to look like it really has no consequences? In fact, sin is kind of a favorite topic for levity. TV shows encourage us to laugh at racial prejudice. Comedians will do stand-up routines joking about drugs and alcoholism. And rappers routinely employ profanity as entertaining lyrics. And a lighthearted attitude towards sexual promiscuity is front and center in both character development and in plot lines these days. And have you noticed how often we use euphemism, euphemisms to make sin look harmless? Adultery is called an affair. Sodomy is gay. Killing the unborn is choice. Lying is spin. Pornography is art. Profanity is adult language. Greed is ambition. Anger is assertiveness. But look at the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. The Bible is not naive and God is not soft on sin. Been a lot uh, in the media this past few days about spring break, which is a ritual for college students in colleges and universities around the country. This newspaper article carried the headline, The Ugly Side of Spring Break. And it told about the victimization of a young college girl who woke up half-clothed, nauseous, and disoriented in unfamiliar surroundings. She had no memory of what had happened the previous night. She managed to make her way back to her hotel room where her roommates insisted that she go to the hospital. And once there, she learned that she had dangerously high levels of GHB, that's the date rape drug, in her blood. She also learned that she had been assaulted by multiple nameless faceless, low-life young men that she did not know and could not recognize. Several weeks later, she was diagnosed with an STD that would render her infertile for the rest of her life. The ugly side of spring break. Spring break looks like so much fun in the sun. What a party. But it has an ugly side. It's uh, horrific consequences of sin. Henry Nouwen tells about a doctor in the country of Paraguay who spoke out against the oppressive government there, and the local police took revenge on him by arresting his teenage son, and then they tortured the boy to death. It was a brutal murder. It was a senseless murder. But the father responded with the most powerful protest imaginable at his son's funeral. He did not have the boy cleaned up and embalmed. 
He displayed his son as he found him in the jail, battered, twisted, open wounds, cigarette burns. All the villagers passed by this grotesque corpse which lay on a blood-soaked mattress from the prison instead of in a coffin. It was repulsive. But the reality of injustice and evil was unmasked. Well, God allowed Jesus to be scourged and crucified so the hideousness of our sin would not be concealed. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin. Jesus' death on the cross reveals what sin looks like to God and what it ought to look like to us. The battered body of Jesus Christ is exhibit A of what the depravity of man is capable of doing. And his prolonged and painful death demonstrates that sin can result in ongoing, untold suffering. So Jesus saw the cross as the inescapable consequence of our sin. But he also saw the cross as the undeniable evidence of his love. Once in a while, someone will ask, well, why did Jesus have to die anyway? Why couldn't he just come to earth and and tell us, look, I am God, and I love you, and I'm sorry you've disobeyed me, and everything's okay now. I have decided to forgive you. And then just ascend into heaven so we can get on with living our busy lives. It would have been so much better for him. And so much more convenient for us. This relates to our concept of love today. We want it to be soft and negotiable and tolerant and and sentimental and emotional. We want Jesus to be like the outgoing U.S. presidents who grant broad sweeping pardons to hundreds of convicted criminals like Dwight Eisenhower who pardoned 1,157 criminals in his last days in office, like Lyndon Johnson, who holds the record, pardoning 1,187 prisoners. Today, many people have the idea that because Jesus loves us, everyone is automatically pardoned and going to heaven when they die, regardless of how they've lived their lives. But friends, His love does not equate to an unconditional get-out-of-jail-free. He's not only a God of love, he's a God of justice. But we don't understand much about justice today because we have dropped charges, bail bonds, suspended sentences, parole, early release, delayed appearances, continuances, and a whole boatload of technicalities. But God is True, John 3, 33. He cannot lie. Jesus is the truth and the life, John 14, 6. He is the personification of integrity. What he says he will do, he will do. And I think the most succinct passage of Scripture to clarify this is Romans 3, 21. And I want you to pay special attention to the underlying words in this passage. But now... A righteousness from God 
has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now I conclude from this passage that the promise of being declared righteous in God's sight is not unconditional. It is only for professing believers. The promise of being freely Justified freely is not unconditional. It's only by receiving and experiencing His grace personally. And the promise of atonement is not unconditional. It's only through an obedient, demonstrated faith in His blood. And we need to understand two Bible terms to fully appreciate the love of Jesus. And here they are. The two terms are justice which means deserved punishment, and grace, which means favor when punishment is deserved. Jesus is full of justice or truth and grace. Now, we've offended him in some very big ways. We've abused his special gifts to us. We've taken for granted his kindness. We've exploited his patience. We've violated his commandments. We've ignored his presence. And for all this and much more, we do, we do deserve punishment. But he absorbs all this hurt. He absorbs all this offense, all this neglect. He absorbs the hurt and even absorbs our punishment for inflicting this hurt on him on the cross. And he favors us with forgiveness. And his indwelling presence by the Holy Spirit. And he draws near to us in response to our prayers. And he rewards us with heaven. And that's why we sing together to celebrate his grace and his love in worship around here. And the undeniable love of Jesus is the only way we will escape the eternal, the sentence of eternal death for our sins. In this age of religious pluralism. People want to believe there are many paths to God, many ways to God. And today, many choose to believe that we'll go to heaven if we live a good life. As long as you're a good moral person and you're kind to other people and to small animals, God will approve you and accept you. And all the man-generated religions in the world stand by this argument that has been advanced purely by human reason. But Christianity stands alone in insisting that we cannot please God with our good life, with our good works, 
And the only way to be reconciled to God is by trusting in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. So how did Jesus see his cross? He saw it as the inevitable consequence of our sin. And he saw it as the undeniable evidence of his love. And Jesus sealed it with his own words in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus agonized in prayer. Father, if there is any other way than the cross, if there's any other way, let this cup of suffering and separation from you because of sin pass from me. But as we all know, there was no other way for Jesus. And some today resist the idea that Jesus is the only way to heaven. We're okay for it to be one way for him. But we don't want it to be one way for us. It's okay for it to be one way for him. The cross, that was the only way that God could be both just and justifier. The only way for forgiveness and eternal life to be possible. The only way for his love to be undeniable. The only way for his love to be believable. And just as there was only one way for him. There is only one way for us. may not be politically correct to say so, but the truth is the truth is the truth. One name among men, given among men, by which we must be saved. And Jesus said in John 12, 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, will draw all people to myself. But then... That drawing power of the cross is subject to whether we will take the one way, the one path that Jesus represents to the Father, to heaven. Just now I want to ask our servers to slip out and prepare to serve the emblems of the Lord's Supper. And as they go, I want to remind you of something Todd said early on that Palm Sunday... This is Palm Sunday in Christian churches throughout the world. This is the Sunday. Today, Palm Sunday, is the day that we remember Jesus came into Jerusalem for the last time. He came riding in on a donkey as a humble king. He came to fulfill his passion that week, the passion of the Christ. It started with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I want to tell you something that you've heard a million times, but maybe it can be impressed in your heart in a fresh way this morning. His passion was for you and me. His passion was the cross, to give his life, to save people, you and me. And so we come to the Lord's table today aware of that. His passion was for me. And so around the Lord's table, I have the opportunity to renew my passion for Him. It's not about church. It's not about Christianity, big C. It's about your passion for Jesus Christ, to know Him, to love Him, 
to serve Him, to be changed by Him, to be on mission with Him. And when we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There's a passage in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. And I think this passage just pulls together everything that I have said this morning in just a few verses. And I'd like to ask you where you're sitting this morning to look up at these words and to read them along with me. And I'm going to read them rather slowly, but you stay with me and read with me from Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 4. Surely... He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we're healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Will you pray with me? Father God, I know it is just too much to be able to see the cross through Jesus' eyes, but we've tried this morning, and we've gotten at least some of the truth, the insight that we need to deepen us, to bring us around your table in these moments, to recommit our lives to you, to renew our devotion to you. So, Lord, in these moments, we pray that there would be true communion with Jesus around his table in his name. Amen.